We're continuing our series uh, called The Life of Christ, and as you uh, have maybe figured out by now, we are heading toward Easter Sunday next week, and I, I want us to focus in on that celebration and the victory that was won, that death has been defeated, and that's what we're going to be talking about next week. But today I want us to look at that arrival into Jerusalem. Everything that we've been talking about up until this point is focused and honed, this pinpointing, this almost a funnel that is taking us to this very point in Jesus' life where he begins to make his journey into Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story. The, the crowds that are around, the surrounding people, and in verse 12... It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you grew up in church, you may be as a kid dressed up in the, um, in the bathrobes um, with the, the towel on your head and you kind of you know, tied it to make you, you look like you were a part of the period. Um, and if you are part of a real cool church, you maybe even had a donkey, and you acted it out. You, you, you had this, this scene of Jesus getting on the donkey and walking into Jerusalem, or riding into Jerusalem on this, on, on this donkey. And the people yelling Hosanna, waving the palm branches, laying their cloaks down while the King of Kings, their Savior, the Messiah, made his way into Jerusalem. But in, in chapter 12, verse 12, there are a few words right at the beginning of that verse that I, I, I want to take a look at. And those words are, were the day after the day after, and, and as John writes this, he, he writes it meaning that what took place the day before this triumphal entry had some significance. He starts, the day after, this is what took place. So I'd like you to look back at verse 1 of chapter 12, and, and these verses here tell us what took place the day before. It says there that it was six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember we talked about Lazarus being raised from the dead last week. Verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And I think it was uh, you know, fitting that Lazarus was reclining because just a few days earlier he was dead, so he needed some rest. Okay, then Mary took a, about a pint of pure nard, an expensive pure perfume. And if you uh, kind of do a little research on what nard is, it is uh, what we would call today an essential oil, a very expensive extract from a plant. And it, it, it had some potency to it. And not only was it, it aromatic in that when the the lid was lifted off, it filled the room, but it was expensive, very expensive. And it says, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, it goes on to say, John's account, says, Judas Iscariot, who, was who would later betray him, objected. 
He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth about a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, because he was, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he would, he, sorry, he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So here's this crowd that's formed. Um, and we get an idea that, uh, of, of how this procession began. The crowd was there because they had been following Jesus. It was a larger crowd because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. And this crowd continued to grow and grow the, the further they got into Jerusalem. These waves of palm branches only to find out a few days later that it's the same crowd that would call for Christ's crucifixion. Well, today I want us to go back to Lazarus' house. I want us to put ourselves into that room and to observe what was going on. To just sit back and, and take it all in. Here we have Mary who is so indebted to Jesus, so in love with what Jesus had come to do, fully recognizing and realizing that his ministry up until this point wasn't the essence of his life. In fact, the essence of his life was where he was going and that was the cross so acutely aware of what Jesus had come to do that she knew that this, this anointing of him was in fact the anointing prepared for his burial. That he would die, that he came to die. And there was a, a, an idea that a good number of people in that room knew what was going on and understood it fully. The account that John gives though says that there was one in the room. There were maybe more, but there was one in the room that we know for sure objected. His name was Judas, Judas Iscariot. We know him by the betrayal that took place. But here, earlier in this week, we hear that he objected, that he object, objected to what Christ had come to do. And the question I have for us is, is there something within us, are there things within us? Are there concepts and ideas? Are there things that come to our mind that leave us objecting as well? You see, Judas spent a number of years with Jesus. If anyone should know his heart, if anyone should know the purpose of his coming, if anyone should know what his life was all about, it was Judas. And yet still there was an objection. He didn't fully understand what Christ came to do. I want you to turn over your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and in verse 18, Paul exposes a little bit of, of possibly what was going on in Judas's mind and in Judas's heart. And he puts it this way, something that was going on with many of the Jews at the time, not just the time that Jesus was going to the cross, but even after he had gone to the cross and was buried and rose from the dead. In verse 18, 
Paul says this, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Do you think maybe this is what was going through Judas's mind? And in verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. He says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block. And that word in the Greek is the, word, is the Greek word scandalon. The word scandalon, which means an offense. In fact, a, a more uh, visual term that uh, you could use or a, an image that comes to mind is a rock in the middle of a path. I don't know if you've ever been uh, walking somewhere, maybe at night in the middle of a dark house and you stub your toe on a chair or something you didn't see. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm down like a, like, you know, I'm out. You, you get that little pinky toe on the edge of a, of a sofa or the dining room table, and man, that's going to stop you in your tracks. Well, this is the word that Paul is using when he talks about the cross of Christ is scandalous. It's where we get that word in our English language, scandal, from. I, I came up with something a little bit more... Um, I guess of a visual for, especially for those of us who are parents. Um, think of yourself as if you're a parent here and uh, you've ever been in that place where, you know, Junior's down at the end of the hall in the middle of the night calling out for a drink of water, Mom, Dad, and, and your spouse elbows you in the ribs and say, it says, go and take care of Junior. Well, you were on your way from point A to point B, your bed to his or her bedroom, and in the middle of that hallway, I guarantee there is one thing that will stop you dead in your tracks. Do you know what it is? Piece of Lego. Yes. So unassuming, so small, there's really nothing to it. But I tell you, you step on this in the middle of your hallway, in the middle of the night, while attending to Junior, and Junior means nothing to you anymore. You are down for the count. Junior will die later for putting that there, but at the same time, that's the image of the scandal. That's the word that Paul is, is talking about, something that we object to, something that stops us from getting fully there. He says the cross of Christ is in fact a scandal. When we fully stop and embrace all that it has and all it is and all it means, we have objections. You say, Pastor, I don't have any objections to the cross. Oh, really? It would be nice to say that. It would be nice to say, I don't have any objections. But when it comes right down to what the cross of Jesus Christ means, I'd venture to say that every single one of us has some places where we stop and we pause. And I believe there are three main objections that we have or we struggle with. And I want to look at those today. The first one is this. The cross highlights human pride. The cross highlights human pride. We like to think that we have it all together, don't we? We like to think that we can, we can manage things on our own. You see, the people in Jesus' day wanted a conquering king. They wanted a Messiah who was going to come and... Uh, um, kick some rear ends and take names 
and defeat the, the, uh, the occupying armies of Rome and, and put the Pharisees in their place. And as long as Jesus was, was performing miracles and speaking these amazing messages that drew tons of crowds and, and that, everything was great. People loved following him until when? Look through scripture. Until he started talking about his death. And still he started talking about the cross. And still he, until he started talking about his life being laid down for sin of the world. And then what happened? People were all in. People were all in until that started happening. Then they just started. I'll check you out later, Jesus. Let me know when you kind of come back around. You see, the cross highlights human pride. The fact that we want things our way. Everything is great. You see, we're all about Jesus, the amazing King of kings and Lord of lords. But when we start talking about Him being a sacrifice for sin, namely our sin, we start to get a little edgy. We start to get a little uh, nervous. We start going, well, uh, depends how much sin we're talking about. Depends what kind of sin we're talking about. Yeah, I might have sped, you know, gone a few miles over the speed limit this week. And okay, no, we're talking about sin. Sin is sin is sin is sin. The deepest, darkest recesses of your lives. You see, this is ego shattering. It's ego shattering to admit that we need the cross. It's ego shattering to say we need a Savior. That we need Him. And I believe to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple, we need to surrender. And you see, it's a reverse from what our human pride has wired us to believe. To become a Christian is to begin at the cross and to admit that we are powerless to save ourselves and that we need Christ because He is the only remedy to our sin. And it's humbling because it's, humble, it's humbling to say, I'm wrong. I've, I've, I've been uh, doing things that are not pleasing to you and haven't met your mark. The problem of sin is so big that it took the death of Jesus to resolve. Paul says this in the book of Romans. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. He goes on and says, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. You notice he doesn't say just a fraction of people have turned away or some have turned away. He says all. That all means all. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. What does he say in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned. There it is again. All is all is all. All have sinned and done what? They've fallen short of God's righteous requirement. Man, that that just jars on our human pride. An objection we have to the cross. But one that the cross exposes in us. The second objection that we have or the second new offense, the, the second Scandal on the thing that trips us up on our way towards the cross is the nature of grace. I really believe that the cross highlights all that grace is about. You see, I believe one of the hardest confessions for us to make, besides the one that says, you know, I messed up, is this one, three words, I need help. 
It's one thing to admit we're messed up. It's another thing to admit that we can't get unmessed up by ourselves. I don't know when the last time you, uh, you did something, maybe you got a flat tire on the freeway or, or you know, something went wrong with an appliance at home and you thought, I can fix this. Every man said, amen. All right, I can fix this or I have to fix this. It's, it's what we're wired to do. And when we come to this understanding that we are sinful people and that we haven't reached that righteous requirement that God has for us, what do we, we land on? We land on this idea that we have to fix it ourselves. And it's hard for us to get to that point where we say we need help. Can't do this on our own. And this is what grace speaks to. You see, we want to be saved. We want victory over destructive habits. We want eternal life, but human nature says that, that we have to somehow attain this on our own. A number of weeks ago, we talked about the, the understanding that so many of us um, get into, and it's easy to, to make that connection that if we only check off the boxes that are required for us, it'll put a smile on God's face, and therefore we'll have the treasure and the prize of heaven. Isn't that how we, we get to heaven? Isn't that how we find eternal life? Isn't that how we find forgiveness of sin if we do the things that puts a smile on God's face and gets us into heaven? Scripture says, no, that's not the way. That's not the way you get there. And in fact, the cross of Jesus Christ is the only way that you can get there. You see, all through history, people have tried to get there on their own, or at least participate in getting there. Look at the Jews, look at those following the law. Even in Paul's day, he had, had the, the, the church trying to wrap back around and say, you know what, yes, we understand that Christ came to die on a cross for our sins, but we need to add to that all of these requirements of the law in order to put a smile on God's face and get his, his prize. People throughout history... We even do it, saying no to these things, not doing these certain things, and, and trying to get there on our own. You know, people not only obey the law, you know, there's some in, in New Testament times who felt that in order to uh, get into heaven and, and to fully um, receive the gift of, of grace through the cross, that, that circumcision was, was necessary. Some felt that eating and, and abs or abstaining from certain foods were important. You think of Peter. Peter, the time when that, that net came down from heaven and, and, and the word from the Lord says, rise up and eat. And Peter goes, no, 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 I can't do that because those are off limits. And God says, you know what? Let me tell you what's off limits and what's on. Or how about those who, who tried over the years in some sort of a monastic lifestyle, maybe even living in caves or removing themselves from society in hopes of putting a smile on God's face. The way you dress, the way you talk, the, the way you limit pleasures. There's another sermon right there is, is, is just what do we do with the pleasures of life? What does Paul say? If righteousness could be gained, this is Galatians 2, if righteousness could be gained through these things, if we could somehow get ourselves from point A to point B on our own, what does it say? Christ died for nothing. 
we might as well just tear this down off the wall, forget all the crosses, just go about our own life. Because if we believe that we can do this by ourselves, cross means nothing. Jesus was the biggest fool who ever lived and he went to a cross because it meant absolutely nothing. But we know that to be different. We know that Jesus came because we couldn't do it on our own. We need a Savior. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, it's by grace you've been saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It's the other offense. It's like, what? No, it's, it's the gift of God, not by works so you can't boast. You see, the cross highlights the nature of grace. And it's another one of those things that we struggle with. You're like, what? A, what? No. And God is saying, no, I sent my son to die on a cross for you because I know you can't do it on your own. It is through his work, his blood shed on the cross, his body broken for you that you've been saved. Finally, I believe the third offense that we struggle with is that the cross has so much to do with discipleship. It reminds us and it's essential in our discipleship process. You see, yes, the cross is, is profound in, in our salvation, in that point where we cross that line of faith and we surrender our lives to Him and we receive the work on the cross, but it doesn't stop there. In fact, Jesus said that this is a lifelong thing. This is a lifelong growing and maturing. Paul picks that up, that concept up, and continues on with it. That your, the, the work of the cross doesn't just stop when you surrender your life to Christ. It's an ongoing process. Again, we love the idea, we love the concept, but do we really exactly get what the cross represents? You see, the cross of Christ stands at the beginning of our relationship with Him, but it also remains at the center of our lives throughout the rest of our lives. It's not a one and done. It's not just a thank you, bought my ticket, and I'm good. No, the cross has an impact on our lives each and every day. The cross of Jesus Christ should have an impact on your life today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest of your life. You know, we talk about uh, uh, bearing up our cross and carrying our cross. You know, Jesus even says, you can't be my disciple unless you take up your cross and follow me. And somehow along the way, we got equating carrying our cross with the burdens that we face and the struggles and the suffering. And, and in some way, as we make our way through life, whether it's, whether it's bad relationships or it's, uh, it's just the weightiness of our jobs or, or, or maybe it's health issues or things like that, we get thinking, you know, somebody asks, how are we doing? Well, I'm just bearing my cross. Well, let me tell you that, that Scripture doesn't equate bearing of a cross with bearing of our burdens. Those two are not interchangeable. And in fact, it's bad theology. We have to think of carrying our cross and taking up our cross not in a matter of carrying or bearing burdens, but in dying to ourselves. And it's a daily thing that we are called to do. We are called to daily take up our cross. And what did Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ. Is therefore not I who lives, but what? Christ who lives in me. 
And we cannot have Christ living within us if we ourselves are living our own life. Think of it this way. You're sitting in, in uh, jolly old England over there and you got an accent that's just a little different from uh, Cody and Leanne in Ireland, but it's uh, along those same lines. But you're in the throne room of Queen Elizabeth and you're sitting on her throne. Not that you would do that, but just let's pretend. You're sitting there. What happens when Queen Elizabeth comes walking through the doors? Uh, can you say awkward? You see, it's the same idea. We can't allow Christ to be the leader of our lives. We can't allow the King of kings and the Lord of lords to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords of our lives if we ourselves are sitting on the throne of our lives. Crucified with Christ is therefore not I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. It's a scandal. It's, a, it's an objection that we have. And it's something that we are called to, to focus on and understand what exactly the cross of Jesus Christ means. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Right where we started. A room full of people, most of whom understood what Jesus was about to do. And yet one who had some very grave objections. Man of God, woman of God, do we fully understand the ramifications of the cross? What it means when we talk about human pride. It's something to notice that, that our pride gets in the way. It's something to acknowledge that, that yes, my pride will supersede and it will want to jump to the forefront. I have to set that aside and understand that I'm a sinner. That I, left to my own devices, will not make those godly choices or those godly decisions. Wrap my mind around the fact that I will want to try to save myself. Wrap my mind around the fact that I will want to do this on my own, in my own way, in my own devices. And I'll believe that my relationship with the Lord and my conversion stopped and finished with one event. And it doesn't affect me. How can we fully embrace what Christ came to do? See, it's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus coming, giving His life, sacrificing Himself for you and for me. I'm inviting our worship team to come and join me up here. Let's all stand together.